0: there is a sense of, I have this responsibility, I have this obligation, but I know I'm not what I ought to be. Well, as Matt said, our goal today is not to reinforce that sense, but for all of us to be equipped in the Word of God so that we leave here better able to carry out these both duties, this duty and this joy that's called prayer. So, with that said, let's uh, launch together into our study of prayer. The issue of prayer into the Word of God. Nothing is more important, and I think we understand this, to us as human beings in this world than breathing. From the doctor's first slap, breathing is involuntary. You breathe, they tell us, some 12 to 15 times a minute, 20,000 times a day. We can vary the rate of our breathing. We can even hold our breath for a short time, but it's impossible to voluntarily stop breathing entirely because if we don't inhale, carbon dioxide builds up in our blood and we experience what scientists refer to as overwhelming air hunger. This reflex is essential to human life. Without breathing, The body's oxygen level drops dangerously low, and within three to six minutes, the brain is irreversibly damaged, and in minutes, death quickly follows. We can live for weeks without food, although we don't always think that's true. We can live for days without water, but we can only live a few minutes without oxygen. Breathing is so crucial to human life that breath is even used as a metaphor for life itself. That's why I think a statement by the English Puritan Thomas Watson is so profound about this issue of prayer. He says this, Prayer is the soul's breathing. Prayer is the soul's breathing. What breathing is to the body, praying is to the soul. We simply cannot survive without it. John Calvin referred to prayer as the soul of faith. It's an interesting expression, the soul of faith. Just as the body dies without the soul, faith without prayer also dies. It's like physical exercise. We all understand the importance of it that is a prayer, but we pray very little. And like, you know, physical exercise, we Knowing it's important, still have sometimes our greatest exertion be the dipping of the ice cream scoop into a hard carton of ice cream. <laughs> For nearly 30 years, a survey that was done among Christians has, has stood the test of time. 17,000 Christians attended a conference that was sponsored by a major denomination. While they were there, these 17,000 Christians completed a survey about their spiritual habits and activities. It remains, as far as I know, the largest survey of its kind. One of the questions on the survey was about how much time Christians spent in prayer on a daily basis. 17,000 evangelical Christians reported that they prayed on average less than five minutes a day. At the same conference, there were 2,000 pastors and their wives, and they were asked the same question. On average, 2,000 evangelical pastors admitted that they prayed less than seven minutes a day. I think it's obvious why this conference has the theme it does. I think prayer is the pastor's most neglected duty. And, you know, when I think about those numbers, while that survey was taken so many years ago... I think it's fair to say that the numbers have not likely improved. In fact, they've probably worsened because of today's man-centered, shallow Christian culture. I think what makes those statistics so terribly tragic is that the scripture tells us that the true God, our God, listens to the prayers of his people. I love Psalm thirty-four, seventeen: The righteous cry, and the Lord hears the righteous cry and the Lord hears. Because of that spiritual reality, the hearts of the righteous have always beat with a passion for speaking to God. I mean, go all the way back to the garden before the fall, and Adam and Eve walked and talked with the second member of the Trinity in the garden. Prayer as we know it really didn't begin until the fourth chapter of Genesis where it's first mentioned when men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And from that point, prayer permeates the entire Old Testament. In the New Testament, prayer remains foundational to man's relationship to God. A devotion to prayer was the pattern of the early church. Acts 2.42 says that those believers in the early church there in Jerusalem were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Prayer was the great priority of the Apostle Paul. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, night and day, we keep praying most earnestly. 2 Timothy three, I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So Old, New Testament, the, the pattern's the same. Fast forward to church history, and throughout church history, godly men have, have joined the chorus emphasizing the importance of prayer. Augustine said, prayer is the protection of holy souls, the preserver of spiritual health. It is the column of all virtues, a ladder to God, and it is the foundation of faith. Martin Luther said, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. In his Institutes on the Christian Religion, John Calvin calls prayer prayer, Quote, the chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. The chief exercise of faith. I think we understand then that nothing is more foundational to the Christian faith than prayer. And we all say we believe that. But here's the question I want to lead out with today, and that is why don't we pray? If prayer is so important, if it is the breathing of the soul, then why don't we pray more than we do? Well, what are the reasons we give for not praying? I'm not talking now about the real reasons, but what do we typically say is the reason we don't pray? There's really only one reason, and that is it's time. I'd like to pray more, but I'm just too, what? Busy. Just too busy. I think it's important for us to be honest with ourselves. That is not the real reason we don't pray. That's just an excuse. It's a, it's a feeble attempt to justify our lack of conformity to the will of God. So what are the real reasons we don't pray? Well, the first real reason is a lack of humility, a lack of humility. We are by nature, let's see if I have control of this, Is that it? Okay, good. Uh, A lack of humility. We are by nature both as fallen sinners and as men and women fiercely independent. Man, we understand that. I mean, if you doubt that, just ask your wife the last time you stopped and asked for directions. We're we're by nature fiercely independent. But understand this, independence (laughs) is not a reflection of or a path to spiritual maturity. Instead, maturity is believing the truth of what Jesus said in John 15, and that is, apart from me, you can do nothing. Or 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. How do we do that? Well, that sentence continues with a participle that pumps... that points back to humble yourself and it's humble yourself by casting all your care on him. When we are truly humble before God, we will recognize our need of him and we will pray. I hate to say this for myself, but I I, I need to say it and that is the best measure of our pride is our neglect of prayer. You want to know how proud you are as a person, measure it by the lack of prayer. Humility expresses itself in prayer. The second reason that we don't pray is a lack of let's see I didn't think think that advanced there we go Uh, a lack of faith a lack of faith. Often we don't pray if we're honest with ourselves because we haven't seen results when we prayed. Past results don't justify future effort I think this is a greater problem than most of us are willing to admit we would never say not one person in this room would ever say prayer doesn't work but if you were really convinced in your heart of hearts that there would be visible verifiable results within five minutes of every prayer you prayed how would that affect your prayer life really honestly you would become the world's greatest prayer warrior and so would I So what it often comes down to is that we doubt anything will happen when we pray, which means nothing will happen. James 1, 6, and 7 says, Ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. A third reason we don't pray is simply a lack of obedience. Romans 12, 12 says, Be devoted to prayer. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Prayer is to be the constant daily pattern of our lives. So let's be honest with ourselves and with the scripture. If we're not devoted to prayer, it's just sin. We must obey ourselves, or excuse me, obey our Lord and devote ourselves to Prayer. So how can we grow in our understanding of this discipline? How can we learn how to pray? Well, nowhere do we learn more about how to pray than in what is traditionally called the Lord's Prayer, which is where I want us to go this morning. There are two versions of the Lord's Prayer that have been preserved for us through divine inspiration. One of them is in Matthew 6. The other is in Luke 11. Now, these are not actually parallel passages. If you harmonize the Gospels, you discover that Jesus probably preached the Sermon on the Mount in the summer before his crucifixion the next spring. A few months later, probably in the fall of that same year, he taught Luke 11. What that means is this prayer was something that Jesus repeated on at least two occasions and probably a number of times throughout his ministry as a pattern for his disciples' prayer. Now, this morning, in this session, I want us to turn to Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. The circumstances here in Luke are extremely instructive about this issue of prayer. Now, when you look at Luke 11, the first 13 verses are about prayer. Verse 1 is. A a disciple's request for instruction on prayer, followed in verses 2 through 4 by what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciple's prayer. Uh, It's a pattern of prayer for us. And then verses 5 through 8, you have a parable about God's eagerness to hear prayer, uh, the parable of the reluctant friend. And then in verses 9 and 10, you have a direct affirmation that God hears and answers prayer. In verses 11 to 13, there's an illustration from family life that God is even more responsive than human fathers to the requests of his children. So that's the the context here. This is a section about prayer. I want us to read just the first four verses of Luke 11. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation." Now, the rest of our time together, I want to focus our time primarily on verse 1. We'll get to verses 2 through 4, but I want to focus on verse 1 because it turns the spotlight on Jesus' own personal example of prayer, on the impact that his example had on his disciples and the impact it should have on us. So... By observing Jesus' personal example here, we're going to learn three crucial lessons about prayer. Three absolutely foundational, crucial lessons that if you will embrace them, will change how you pray. So let's begin then with the first lesson. And the first lesson is that prayer is a spiritual priority that requires great commitment prayer is a spiritual priority that requires great commitment look at verse one it happened that while jesus was praying in a certain place now the word luke uses for praying here is part of the family of new testament words for prayer and this is the most frequent one it's it's the greek word prosyukomai in secular greek this word meant to speak to a deity in Scripture, it's only used of man's approach to God. It is, as, as Calvin defined prayer, an intimate conversation with God. That's the nature of this word. And here, our Lord, as man, speaks to God, as all godly men and women have done and continue to do. Nowhere do we witness firsthand the importance of prayer more than the life of our Lord. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 speaks of our lord like this in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death and he was heard because of his piety now when we look at the gospels it's tempting to think that the reason jesus spent so much time in prayer was because he missed the communion that he and the father had enjoyed before the incarnation but that's simply not true Jesus' divine nature didn't change when he took on humanity. Although his human nature was bound to a body and could only be in one place, his divine nature continued to fill the universe and the communion that the Son had enjoyed with the Father from all eternity, that communion continued throughout his earthly life. So Jesus' prayer life then was not a reflection of his divine nature but of his human nature. As the perfect man, Jesus often prayed. He often prayed. In fact, nine times in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us about Jesus praying. Seven of those are recorded in Luke alone. Let's look at them together. First of all, Luke tells us that Jesus began his public ministry By praying. He began his public ministry by praying. Go back to chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And notice this. While he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. So it is baptism, at the very commencement of his public ministry, Jesus prayed. Luke tells us it was Jesus' regular practice to pray. Look at chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Literally, the Greek text says, he was withdrawing and was praying. The tense that That Luke chooses stresses that this was Jesus' constant pattern. He was withdrawing and he was praying. Before strategic decisions, Jesus prayed all night. For example, before he chose the 12, look at chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles. According to Luke, it was also while he was praying that he was transfigured before his disciples. Chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and, gle- and gleaming. In chapter 22, verses 39 and 41, we find Jesus in Gethsemane praying. He came out of the upper room and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray. And here's the incredible thing. Jesus died praying. Chapter 23, verse 46. Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus' last words were... Spoken in a prayer of trust. Mark's gospel makes it clear to us that Jesus' typical day was filled with prayer. Jesus prayed early in the morning. So not only when you look at the scope of his life, but when you look even at at a a typical day, you find this a reality in our Lord's life. He prayed early in the morning. Look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place, and he was praying there. Now, what makes this truly remarkable is when it happened, because Mark tells us that the day before this, on the Sabbath, Jesus had ministered there in Capernaum, the, the town that he had chosen for his ministry headquarters. And on that Sabbath, verses 21 and 22 of this chapter tell us that Jesus had taught in the synagogue. And then in verses 23 to 28, he cast out a demon. And then he goes home from the synagogue, and in verses 29 to 31, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And all of that was before lunch. After dark, when the Sabbath was over... The entire city showed up outside of Peter's home. Look at verse 33. The whole city had gathered at the door. And at at that point, Jesus healed the sick. Verse 34 says he cast out demons. Undoubtedly, that had gone on late into the night. It was the next morning, Sunday morning, even after a long day of ministry the day before, that Mark records that Jesus got up to pray in the early morning while it was still dark. Verse 35. He got up and he went away to a secluded place. Literally, the text says to a wilderness place. Jesus slipped out of Peter's house. He quietly left the city of Capernaum and he found a quiet, secluded place. And Jesus did this for one reason. To have an extended time of prayer. Jesus also prayed in the evening after a long day's work. Look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 46. After bidding them farewell he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now again, what makes this remarkable is Jesus praying here came at the end of a very long day. On that day, the gospel record tells us that in spite of Jesus' efforts to get his disciples some rest, a crowd of more than 15,000 had tracked him down, and because of his compassion, he ministered to them, he healed the sick, and according to Mark 6, 34, he taught them many things, and then late that afternoon, he miraculously fed a crowd of 5,000 men, likely more than 15,000 altogether. It was after a day like that that Jesus spent this time in prayer. So Jesus' example demonstrates that next to the word of God, prayer was his greatest duty. But he also made it clear that he expects us, his disciples, to pray. Back in our text, Luke chapter 11, verse 2 says, When you pray. In Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, three times in that text, Jesus says, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray. He not only expects us to pray, however, Jesus commands us to pray. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Colossians 4, two: devote yourselves to prayer. The Christian life is not merely the indicatives of the gospel. We we love the realities of the gospel. But as a result of our justification, there are also imperatives. And this is a key imperative. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we love Jesus Christ, then we are to pray. No matter how busy we are, and this is what we have to remind ourselves, no matter how busy we are, there is no option here. Jesus says, pray. The two compelling priorities in Jesus' ministry were prayer and the word of God. The disciples, the apostles like us, were a little dense and slow learners. But they eventually understood that these were to be their greatest priorities as well. That's why in Acts chapter 6 verse 4, you remember when the, the issue with the care of the widows there arose in the Jerusalem church, they said what? We, we're not going to abandon our chief duties to, to take care of this ministry. We will devote ourselves to what? The ministry of the word and to prayer. And to prayer. The priorities of Jesus and his apostles, they have to be ours as well. If we're going to be involved in in ministering in the church of Jesus Christ, we must embrace this priority. Prayer is essential for all Christians. But if, if we are in any position of leadership in the church, it's even more vital for us. Because prayer is the foundation of all ministry. You see this in Paul's prayers. One of the breakout sessions going to look at one of the prayers of the Apostle Paul, but you see this constantly in his life. I love what John Owen writes. He says, "He that is more frequent in his pulpit to his people than he is in his closet for his people is but a sorry watchman." Jonathan Edwards wrote of David Brainerd. "His life shows the right way to success in the works of the ministry how he did labor always fervently in prayers day and night, wrestling with God in secret until Christ was formed in the hearts of the people to whom he was sent. Prayer is essential to effective teaching and preaching of God's word. Ephesians six nineteen. Paul says, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Richard Baxter writes, Prayer must carry on our work as well as our preaching, for he that does not pray for his people will not preach powerfully to his people. It's also important to understand the connection between prayer and our battle with temptation. It is through prayer that we win the personal battle with temptation and sin. In Luke chapter 22, you remember our Lord connected prayer, and temptation together. He said, watch and pray that you what? Do not enter into temptation. Commenting on that verse, John Calvin writes this, we conclude from this petition, the petition in the Lord's Prayer now he's commenting on, that we have no strength for living a holy life except so far as we obtain it from God. Whoever implores the assistance of God to overcome temptations acknowledges that unless God deliver him, he will be constantly failing. J.C. Ryle writes about this. What's the reason that some believers are so much holier than others? The difference in 19 cases out of 20 arises from different habits about private prayer. Those who are not eminently holy pray little and those who are eminently holy pray much. You know, it sounds somewhat simplistic, doesn't it, to say that that our spiritual struggles stem from neglect either of the scripture or prayer, but invariably, when people come to us with need for counsel about serious problems, inevitably they have been inconsistent nine times out of ten in the basic disciplines of the Christian life, private prayer, and the Word of God, invariably. And, and frankly, I'll just say I see the same connection in my own life. When my own commitment to the Word of God personally and to prayer isn't what it ought to be, I hear the, the voice of those temptations that have been dampened over time by the work of the Spirit. I hear the voice of those temptations grow louder. if you are losing in your struggle with a sin habit, it is probably because you are neglecting one of the most basic means of grace, either Bible study or prayer. John Owen, in his classic work on sin and temptation, makes this point. Listen to what he writes. He says, A man finds a lust that is powerful and strong, leads captive, vexes, disquiets, takes away peace. He is not able to bear it, Wherefore, he sets himself against it, prays against it, groans under it, sighs to be delivered. But in the meantime, in reading, prayer, and meditation, he is loose and negligent. Let not that man think that ever he shall arrive to the mortification of the lust he's perplexed with. He goes on to say this. Do you think God will ease you of that which perplexes you, that you may be at liberty to do that which no less grieves him? No, God says, here is one. If he could be rid of this lust, I should never hear of him more. Let him wrestle with this, or he is lost. Owen says, let not any man think to do his own work that will not do God's. God's work consists in universal obedience. To be freed of the present perplexity is their own only. The rage and predominancy of a particular lust is commonly the fruit and issue of a careless, negligent course in general. And he means in the scripture and in prayer. As the disciples watched Jesus' life and saw him praying, they came to the conclusion that prayer is the spiritual priority that requires great, great commitment. Because our own spiritual growth is impossible without it. And without prayer, our ministry will be ineffective as well. Now, if that's true, why do we so frequently neglect this duty? I think we can see why in the second lesson we learned from Luke 11.1, and that is that prayer is a spiritual priority that requires great commitment, that's what we've seen, but the second point that we learned, the second lesson here, is that prayer is an intentional practice that requires deliberate time. Prayer is an intentional practice that requires deliberate time. Look at verse 1 again. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished The clear implication is what? That the disciples waited until Jesus finished praying. In other words, Jesus devoted time to prayer. And we see that in other places. The gospel writers tell us that our Lord spent considerable time in prayer, as we've seen. He often withdrew to a lonely place to pray. Obviously, he wouldn't have done that for a short-sentence prayer. He has to have time to pray, and that's why he went away on at least two occasions he prayed all night. We gain further insight into Jesus' prayer life by looking at his prayer on that in that period of time that receives the most space of his earthly life, and that is the Passion Week. Let's just think for a moment about the Thursday night before the crucifixion. The Thursday night before the crucifixion. Jesus and his disciples assembled in the upper room to celebrate the Passover. In Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, we learn that Jesus had prayed for Peter that his faith not fail. During the traditional Passover celebration, Jesus, as the host, would have offered a number of prayers. In addition, of course, he inaugurated the Lord's table and he gave thanks for both the bread and the cup. After supper was over, John 17 records his high priestly prayer. And then Matthew and Mark and Luke all record Jesus praying in Gethsemane. Three times Jesus prayed long enough that Peter, James, and John fell asleep. It's likely that he prayed for one to two hours during that time. So our Lord offered all of those prayers. Just look at that list. Our Lord offered all of those prayers in one evening. It's very clear that Jesus was devoted to deliberate, intentional time to pray. Now, the reason I emphasize this is I think we are all tempted to use Paul's words, pray without ceasing, to justify the lack of time we spend in prayer, it's, it's kind of how we salve our consciences. And, and it is true, we are to live our lives in a spirit of prayer. So in every moment you know, that our mind isn't immediately occupied, we're to, be, we're to be shooting up prayers to the Lord. But the same apostle who wrote, pray without ceasing, also wrote, devote yourselves to prayer. Prayer requires, and we see it in the ministry of Christ, deliberate, intentional time. So why is prayer not the habitual practice of our lives? As I searched my own heart, it occurred to me that there are, at a practical level, a couple of reasons for that. The first is the absence of undistracted time. Now, I'm not, you know, an anachronism, somehow uh, decrying all of the modern technology. I use it and enjoy it, and sometimes it works. Uh, I'm happy for it, I use it, it's a tool. But the average person, they tell us, is interrupted by his his smartphone, phone calls, text messages, updates from social media, every three minutes or less. According to Nielsen Media Research, the average person spends between five and six hours watching video and another hour using the Internet every day, Those statistics are just a few years old. I think the number has increased. Men ages 18 to 34 spend almost three hours a day playing video games. So although we know we should pray, we are constantly distracted by our electronic tools and toys. Can I just encourage you to silence all the vibrations and the bells and devote yourselves To prayer deliberately, intentionally, get outside and alone with God in prayer just like our Lord did. I think there's another more subtle enemy to prayer for those of us in ministry. And many of us here are at some level or another. And that is, and this is shocking, but the ministry itself. Look at Acts chapter 6. You remember this? In Acts chapter 6, verse 2. The twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What threatened to destroy the apostles' devotion to the word of God in prayer here? What was it? was ministry, other ministry, the legitimate needs of people. And the same is true for us. The good is often the enemy of the best. And the busyness of ministry can destroy our devotion to the word of God and prayer. Like the apostles, we have to resolve not to let that happen. We have to, like they did, Make sure that we are letting the church be the church and letting people use their gifts and come alongside and we remain devoted to those things that are the most important. Examine the lives of the saints and you'll find they intentionally set aside times each day for prayer. Psalm 55, 17, David writes, Evening and morning and at noon he will hear my voice. Evening and morning at noon he will hear my voice. Same pattern in Daniel's life. Daniel 6:10. when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. In Acts 13, or excuse me, Acts three verse one, Peter and John went to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. It was typical for those Jews living in Jerusalem to go for the morning sacrifice and the afternoon sacrifice. Go to the temple. Take a break from your day to go and pray. In Acts chapter 10, verse 9, Peter wasn't in Jerusalem. He was at Joppa, and you remember he was on the housetop about the sixth hour, and he went up there to pray at noon before his his lunch. There was a daily intentional pattern to their prayers. There was an exchange between Martin Luther and his barber, a man named Peter Beskendorf, who asked Luther about prayer. And Luther wrote a 40-page response. Typical Luther. (laughs) And in that response, Luther says this, a good, clever barber must have his thoughts, mind, and eyes concentrated upon the razor and beard and not forget where he is in his stroke and shave. If he keeps talking or looking around or thinking of someone else, he's likely to cut a man's mouth or nose or even his throat. So anything that is to be done well ought to occupy the whole man with all his faculties and members. As the saying goes, he who thinks of many things thinks of nothing and accomplishes no good. Boy, that's the description of our age, isn't it? He goes on, how much more must prayer possess the heart exclusively and completely if it's to be a good prayer? It is a good thing to let prayer be the first business of the morning and the last at night. Guard yourself carefully against those false, deluding ideas which tell you, "Wait a little while. I'll pray in an hour. First, I must attend to this or that." Such thoughts get you away from prayer into other affairs which so hold your attention and involve you that nothing comes of prayer for that day end quote. Do you set aside times? Do you set aside times every day to pray? You see, what makes the difference between those who pray and those who don't is those who pray plan to pray. Calvin includes a section in the Institutes entitled Prayer at Regular Times, and he suggests this as a daily pattern of our prayers. Although we ought always to raise our minds upward towards God and pray without ceasing, yet such is our weakness that it is requisite for us to appoint special hours for this exercise. Hours that are not to pass away without prayer and during which the whole affections of our minds are to be completely occupied. And then he lists these. These are not inspired. These are suggestions. Namely, here are the times you ought to set aside, he says. When we rise in the morning, before we commence our daily work, when we sit down to food, and when we retire to rest. Calvin says, listen, you need to program time into your day intentionally to pray. We learn from the life of our Lord that prayer is an intentional practice that requires deliberate time. And folks, if it was so important for our Lord to make time to pray with that ministry of three and a half years, how much more important is it for us? His ministry was far more demanding than ours and yet, he made time to pray. So don't let us ever insult our Lord by saying the reason we don't pray is we don't have time because we're busier than he was. Jesus' example teaches us that prayer is a spiritual priority that requires great commitment, that prayer is an intentional practice that requires deliberate time. The third lesson we learned from Luke 11:1 is that prayer is a practical skill that requires careful instruction. Prayer is a practical skill that requires careful instruction. Notice verse 1 again. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. One of the twelve, we aren't told which one, wouldn't shock me if it was Peter, speaking for the others, made this specific request. Lord, teach us to pray. The word teach here is the normal Greek word for oral instruction. Now, this is an interesting request, because the disciples basically already understood praying. I mean, they had read the Old Testament examples. They had grown up in Jewish homes where... They had heard prayers and prayed their entire lives. By the time this incident occurs, they had lived with Christ night and day for at least a year, and certainly more of that. They had undoubtedly heard Jesus pray many times. And a few months before, in Matthew 6, he had taught them how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. But they still had not mastered the skill of praying. You know, in one sense, when we think of it, Praying is just like the natural cry of a child saying, Abba. But it's crucial that we understand that mature praying does not come naturally. It's a skill that must be learned. The disciples knew their prayers needed help. And I have to say, this is a great encouragement to me. Notice verse 1. They, they acknowledged that not only did they need help, but verse 1 says, teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples. Now, we have no record of John's prayers or his teaching on prayer, but clearly this was a crucial part of his ministry. Luke 5, verse 33, the Pharisees said to Jesus, the disciples of John often offer prayers. So, john's disciples needed him to teach them how to pray i do find this so comforting because if we have to acknowledge that our prayers need help we aren't the only ones get in line behind the disciples of john behind the apostles of our lord and the beauty of this is it also means that prayer is a skill that we can learn let me say that again because this is crucial Prayer is a skill that we can learn with the right instruction. And of course the best one to teach us how to pray is Jesus himself. And by the grace of God, he provided us with an inspired record of how our Lord taught his disciples to pray. So if you find yourself resonating with this request, as I do my own heart, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Then Jesus has answered that prayer. Now, what follows here in our text is the Lord's Prayer. But, but Jesus gave the most comprehensive version of this prayer when he preached the Sermon on the Mount several months earlier. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 for a moment. I'm not going to spend much time here, but I just want to give you sort of an outline of this. A couple of quick observations that I hope will encourage us all to study our Lord's instruction more carefully in the coming days. First of all, look at chapter 6 verse 9. Jesus begins, pray then in this way. Jesus here provides us with a model, a pattern to help us fashion all our prayers. Just as with the Ten Commandments condensed God's law into ten Hebrew words, in the same way here this prayer condenses everything that should be part of our prayers into a small package that even a child can memorize Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, wrote, there is absolutely nothing passed over that is not comprehended in these, our prayers and petitions. This, he said, is a compendium of heavenly doctrine. Tertullian said, this is a new outline of prayer. Hugh Latimer, the English reformer and martyr, said this prayer is the sum and abridgment of all other prayers. All other prayers are contained in this prayer. And this remarkable prayer Jesus has given us a model our prayer should follow. Let's just briefly look at it together. First of all, there is the preface. There are three elements of this prayer. The preface, the six petitions, and the conclusion. The preface is our Father who is in heaven, and that lays out the attitudes that we should have as we approach God in prayer. First of all, we, the word our tells us to pray as a member of the family. Our Christian faith is not something that's purely individualistic. We are members of a family, and our reminds us of that. Father reminds us to pray as the child of a father. We have been both born of God and we have been adopted by God. We are his children, and we come to him as a father. But our father is no ordinary father. The expression, who is in heaven, means that we are to come as the subject of a king. It's that balance of his transcendence and his eminence. We hold them in tension. That both are true. And so this is the attitude with which we are to come to God in prayer. Then we come to the six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. There we go. The six petitions. These identify the six categories of prayer and they outline the kinds of requests that should come from our lips and our hearts. Notice Jesus tells us, if you look there at at chapter 6, Jesus tells us in verse 9, we are to pray for the glory of God. Hallowed be your name. We are to pray for the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come. We are to pray for the will of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray about the needs of this life. Give us this day our daily bread. We're to pray in the confession of sin. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we're to pray regarding the pursuit of holiness. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, look at those six petitions. Notice the proportion of these requests. Half of them are about God, and half of them are about us and our needs. Sadly, most of our prayers are about what? Us. Also, notice the balance of these requests. Jesus divides the requests we should make into six categories, but most of our prayers fall into only two of those categories, the needs of this life and the confession of sin. It's obvious our prayers are out of balance. Also, notice the order of these requests. The order is obviously by design. It tells us volumes about what should be the focus of our prayers. The first three are all about God. We don't get to our needs until the second half of this model prayer. Our prayers must begin with and be preoccupied with God, with His glory, with His work, and with His will. Only then are we ready to ask for the things we need. So, that's how our prayers should be framed. Those are the categories. I encourage you to, to jot those down and intentionally, in your prayers, follow that pattern. Include requests that have to do with God's glory. Start with your own heart. Lord, be glorified in my own mind and heart and how I think about you and how I act toward others today. Be glorified in the life of my spouse, the life of my family. Be glorified through the church I belong to. Be glorified in how I do my work. Be glorified in the world. Lord, this situation that's unfolding in Europe, be glorified in the outcome of that. Make your name known. You get the idea. All of these become a a, A broad, sweeping outline of our prayers. Here's the remarkable thing about the Lord's Prayer. In it, Jesus teaches us to pray the same way that he prayed. Think about this. Jesus often began his prayers by addressing God as his Father and acknowledging that he's in heaven. Luke 10, 21. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And his prayers were often filled with these same petitions. He was always concerned in prayer that his Father's name be hallowed. John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. John 17, 1, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He constantly prayed that God's kingdom would advance. John 11, 41 and 42, Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus' constant concern was that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that God's revealed will in his word be obeyed, and that God's sovereign will be be accepted that's why in the garden in Luke twenty two forty two, 42 he said father if you're willing remove this cup from me yet not my will but yours be done he prayed regarding the needs of this life including his daily bread we often find Jesus praying before meals praying that God would supply food for the crowds through him and although he never asked for forgiveness for his own sins because he didn't have any he did pray for the forgiveness of others. Luke twenty two thirty four. 34, Father, forgive them. And he prayed for the spiritual protection and growth of holiness in holiness of others. You remember he prayed in Luke 22, For Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. John 17, 17, he prayed, Father, sanctify my followers in the truth. Your word is truth. So when you and I pray in these categories, we really join our prayer with our Lord himself. And right now, right now in heaven, our great high priest continues to offer these same petitions with us and for us. Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes rather who was raised, who who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to make intercession for his people. So our Lord has shown us the priority of prayer, the priority of prayer in our own lives and ministries by his personal example. He's shown us the practice of prayer by the deliberate and intentional time that he invested in prayer. And he's taught us the skill of praying by his careful instruction. And he continues to intercede on our behalf. Friends, he has given us everything we need. And now, may he give us the grace to make this commitment. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Let's pray together. Father we are humbled by what we've seen in the life of our Lord. And yet, at the same time that we're humbled and have to seek your forgiveness for neglecting this this important duty and command, we're also encouraged. We're encouraged because we see that this is a skill that, that we can learn through our Lord's instruction, that we can grow in if we devote ourselves to it. Father, give us that grace. Give us that resolve the resolve to obey our Lord and to follow his amazing example. Lord, may we leave this conference being men and women who are more devoted to prayer in daily practical ways than we have ever been before. And Father, may you be pleased to enable us to grow in the skill of seeking your face. We thank you, O God, That when the righteous cry, you hear. Help us not to neglect that mighty privilege. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.